0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, you got to listen in every Tuesday to stay up to date on the most recent medication therapy topics. Game Changers creates awareness about pharmacotherapy and clinical practice changes that can significantly impact pharmacy practice. Every Tuesday, a new episode of Game Changers is published on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. And always remember the pharmacist is the hub of healthcare.
2: To another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome, and uh, hope wherever you are, it's getting a little bit warmer outside, and you get a little chance to, to head outside and do some more stuff. Uh, we're because I'm in Iowa, you know, and the weather is always changing in Iowa. We're kind of in between places, so it's warm, then it's not so warm, but uh, still trying to get out a little bit more. So uh, again, thank you for taking the time to, to listen to the podcast. Um, for those of you this first time, welcome. Please head over to where you listen to your podcast. Give us a like, give us a subscribe, and most importantly, head over to our producer CE Impact. Uh, take a look at their website and the plethora of, of uh, CE programs they have, including earning CE for listening to this podcast uh, with a very reasonable fee and very little time. You can find yourself on, with some up to date CE that is, is pretty easy to get and, and, and I hope pretty useful as we kind of go along here. So today uh, I am uh, grateful to be joined by Jay Galdo, who is kind of my partner in crime around here and, and definitely is is the person responsible for, for, for making game changers go? And today we are going to be talking about uh, Alzheimer's disease. So no COVID for another week. I'm pretty happy about that. Um, and uh, this was kind of touched off by a couple of studies that have come out in, just in the last uh, a couple of months that have described Alzheimer's disease. And you know, basically, you know, first of all, the 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 uh, uh, personal costs, and I mean by costs I mean financial costs that uh, that Alzheimer's can wreak even in the years before a formal diagnosis is. is is made, and then uh, uh, a recent paper that looked at uh, what is probably not a big surprise to most primary care or geriatrician people that uh, uh, these patients are on tons and tons of psychopharmacotherapy and uh, uh, that obviously can be bad as well. Um, So before we get started on the first part of this, you know, just some background with Alzheimer's disease, and again, I think many of us are are kind of vaguely aware of these numbers, but when, when you actually say them out loud, it kind of smacks you in the face, you know, that the current cost of Alzheimer's is, is is currently 305 billion with a B uh, per year, and as the population ages, that's going to hit the trillion with a T mark by, by 2050, and this is just a, a, what's going to be a, what has been called the silver tsunami because, because as the population ages and the baby boomers uh, do get older and even my own generation X starts to get older, we're going to, 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 to have more and more of these patients, and the sad fact is, is we don't have a lot to offer these patients. Patients and yes, there's been you know some some movement I think in the therapeutic space, but it's very little movement. And uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. It's the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, and uh, one in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or other dementia. Um, and when that happens, 16 uh, million Americans provide uh, unpaid care to individuals with Alzheimer's and other dementias. And that's it's caused, as many uh, listeners know, uh, you know, kind of a reversal of the of the of the. From the nuclear family to the extended family, where now, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who are in, uh, you know, uh, uh- Kind of that middle range where their kids are just getting out of school perhaps and, and heading to college and now their parents are needing help and they're having to you know have them back in their home or visiting them more often and so they you know they that, that kind of happens and of course you know as time goes on that'll happen to the parents as well and and you get this kind of you know rotating uh, um, and downward spiral where where you know it's it's very difficult to to, to help to uh, take care of, of of the of these patients so and of course what's been most frustrating about about Alzheimer's is there really is no treatment. I mean, yes, there are several FDA approved drugs for Alzheimer's, uh, you know, and, and what always struck me is that, is that, you know, while these dr- uh, drugs are FDA approved, they never really seem to do what we really want these medications to do. And if you've ever read Alzheimer's studies, you always know that they'll, they'll randomize patients to placebo or, uh, you know, whatever drug they're studying, and then they'll do some. They'll do a, a, a numerous group of, of baseline surveys where they, you know, will, will, will assess their their neuropsych, their neurocognitive effects. They'll they'll do uh, uh, surveys of the the caregivers. of loose surveys of the physicians taking care of these patients. And then after they're on the, the the treatment for a while, then they'll redo all those all these surveys on patients and caregivers and and the uh, the providers caring for them. And if they're better, then that gets you FDA approval for these drugs, um, but does that actually do what we want these drugs to do? I would say that we want these drugs to keep people as community dwelling and as independent as possible and, and at all costs, keeping them out of, of nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities, and none of these drugs do that, and, and that's not new information. The AD2000 study done back in 2000, now 21 years ago, uh, showed uh, that donepezil did not uh, 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 decrease the risk of nursing home placement in patients. and. We really haven't found anything else that's done that. So so whether you're talking, you know, uh, memantine or, or donepezil or any of these other things, you know, yes, they're FDA approved, uh, but they don't seem to actually, in my opinion, really do what we want these drugs to do. And that's probably, of course, because by the time most people recognize that they have Alzheimer's disease, it's probably too late to do anything about it, right? And many have said that these drugs would probably work if we could get an early diagnosis in them. But since most people aren't going to be volunteering to have brain biopsies done, yeah, especially early on in their lives, uh, diagnosis has always been a real challenge. And of course, we use things like like uh, the MMSE and, 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 and other scales to try and help us make that diagnosis. But it's 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 very challenging to do so, especially as patients develop adaptable behaviors that allow them to just barely stay living independent. And Lord knows, on on my medicine service, we see many many times a year that that patient who you know has has just managed to adapt his or her surgery. Circumstances enough to barely live independently, and then all it takes is one urinary tract infection, or one fall, or one stroke, and then that's it. They they can't live by live alone anymore. They can't live independently anymore. So, I uh, you know that's that that's the other piece that's kind of associated with this. Certainly, we should try and reduce modifiable risk factors, and so things like you know trying to take care of people's blood pressure, diabetes. That's been shown to help. Uh, trying to keep people as active as possible. Try to help with uh, with keeping brains involved, and you know not having people. Just sit there and watch television all day long, and, and, and things along those lines uh, have certainly, ha- you know, had a role and stuff like that. But the bottom line is that we really can't prevent it. We have a difficult time diagnosing it, and by the time we do diagnose it, uh, treatment is 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 of some, but probably very subpar value. And so it's in this kind of milieu that that these two studies we're going to talk about. And the first is is critical, I think, and certainly if if any of my listeners, any of our listeners, uh, have parents with all. Alzheimer's, uh, this may smack them right in the forehead, and they may go, oh, wow, this sounds really familiar to me. So Jake had brought this uh, to our attention, so welcome, Jake, to uh, to The Game Changers. It's always great to have you on, and if you want to kind of talk a little bit about this study looking at at financial uh, uh, impact of, of Alzheimer's uh, and, and dementias that'd be great.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Jeff, for having me here, and uh, this is a very personal topic and one I'm happy to, to kind of talk about. Uh, so this article came out. I want to say like November of uh, 2020 or so. So we've been sitting on it for a little bit, something interesting. And it's definitely different from what we normally discuss. You know, when we're here, we often talk about drug A versus drug B. And this has nothing to do with drug A or drug B. It's all about, you know, how patients are presenting. What, is, what are the other clues that we can look at for that holistic evaluation of an individual to help us care for them um in a better way. And so this was from Nichols and colleagues out of Johns Hopkins, and it's called The Financial Presentation of Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias. And what I like about it, this was published in JAMA, and what they did is they actually have like their key question findings. So I'm going to start with that. That's like the cliff note version, and then we'll do a deep dive. But there, the question they posed was, you know, are Alzheimer's disease and related dementias associated with adverse financial outcomes in the years before and after diagnosis? I really like this question. It's like, can we look at someone from a non-healthcare perspective? Can we look at them, you know, where they're living? What are their finances? And this, you know, one specifically finances and say, can that help us understand what's going on with that individual's health? And so this was a cohort study of 81,000 Medicare beneficiaries. And they identified that those with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias or ADRD uh, were more likely to miss bill payments up to six years prior to diagnosis, and they developed subprime credit scores two and a half years prior to diagnosis. I'm going to really let that sit in there. We have patients that ended up being diagnosed with Alzheimer's or related dementias that were missing bills six years before diagnosis and started to have subprime credit scores two and a half years prior to diagnosis. And what really jumps out to me is that has major ramifications for that individual right? Because if they can't afford or they're missing payments and then suddenly they have bad credit or they have bad debt, you know, how does this spiral out of control? What does this mean with future placement and how do they kind of live their lives? So when we do a deep dive into this study, we see that it was a retrospective secondary data analysis of consumer credit report outcomes with Medicare claims data. So they matched up um, Medicare beneficiaries and claims days there with some, you know, were public or not republic or reported, but, but data that they could get out of consumer credit reports. So they worked with some of our major uh, credit services to, to look at this. And they really did examine the occurrence of adverse financial events in those with versus without Alzheimer's disease and related dementia and the time of diagnosis. And they defined an adverse financial event, as we mentioned, as a missed payment on credit accounts, uh, 30 days or more, and as having subprime credit scores. And as we talked about, we saw that this happened six years. The missed bill payment happened six years prior to diagnosis um, with about 7.7% versus 7.3% with an absolute difference of 0.4 percentage points in a confidence interval of 0.07 to 0.7. Uh, so fairly significant on that 95% confidence interval and that their uh, development of subprime credit scores happened 2.5 years prior. Um, again, they had that identified as 8.5 versus 8.1% with an absolute difference of 0.38. So really, it's just kind of reemphasizing this idea that um, they're starting to identify patients that have negative financial outcomes in their lives now, which are going to end up being diagnosed with Alzheimer's and related dementia. Um, I think this is important. I think it's kind of, you know, Interesting. So I was actually talking when this first came out to my neighbor. He's a financial planner. I ended up sharing it with him so he could start to talk to his clients about it because from his perspective as a financial planner working with patients, he has strict client confidentiality. He's not allowed, even if he starts to notice from a financial perspective, a, a client. Uh, might have risk factors or seeming to do um, abnormal things. He might want to make an intervention, but he really can't. He can't talk to other people because of that client confidentiality. Right. So instead, by empowering you know him, my my not my but my neighbor who is a financial advisor, he's able to to open up these conversations with clients earlier on how to make interventions. At the same time, I think this is great for healthcare providers. I think about the community pharmacists where patients are coming into our store, you know. 38 times a year or whatever the the data says. I think you and I did a, a game changer where it said about 12, uh, 12 times a year. Mm-hmm. And so we have this, this opportunity to start talking to people earlier about, like, are you missing payments? Do we notice them missing payments in the pharmacy? And is that going to be a red flag to us about that individual possibly having uh, dementia? And how can we start to get some early diagnosis, start to get them into care sooner? All
2: right, All right. And that, I mean, it's funny how you know you you do wonder you know could you all I'm sure you could use as a diagnosis, but I mean, certainly if you have family members, you know, you know who are starting to notice, you know, gee, you know, you know, mom, you know, or mom and dad, you know, they they you know told me that they missed a you know a payment on something or you know I they they're asking me for for tax advice they never they've never done that before you know can can that be an you know kind of an early you know, uh, trigger just to have a discussion and, and say, hey, you know, maybe we need to go see your doctor and, and kind of, you know, you know, talk about the possibility, because as we've said, you know, I mean, if there's any uh, uh, benefit to be gained from from some of the treatments that are FDA approved for, for Alzheimer's, you know, the earlier, the better, you know, the, the more likely that they will have people maintain, you know, independence in, in, in the community. So um, I think that's pretty important. Also, you know, frankly. <laughs> And I, I know this study probably doesn't address it. Is is you know what's what is what it's, it's yet another sort of, of of caretaker role that I think uh, you know some of the some of the children and 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 relatives of, of these patients may find is that you know it isn't going to be their doctor or their pharmacist who's you know handling their their mortgage or handling their their rent or handling any of that other stuff, and it's going to be you know yet another kind of you know uh, a task and maybe frankly burden that that, that um, uh, uh, some of the some of the family members may have may have to deal with so I mean that's something else to think about uh, you know I think as, as far as the study concerned
1: I think that's a great takeaway Jeff and I think it is really important about you know the life administrative tasks that get placed on the, the caregivers to manage things like this. And to your to your point about, you know, when when caregivers or family members might identify this in a loved one and saying, hey, let's check this out, you know, we started to do with that with with mom and said, you know, we think that there's memory issues. And so uh, mom and we actually even told mom's doctor and she went in and the doctor, this was their assessment to see if mom had had memory issues. You know, Miss Ms Scaldo, do you have memory issues? Mom went, No. And they said, okay, assessment's done. Uh, so, so there's sometimes uh, some barriers that we have to overcome. Yeah, there might be.
2: So, you know, do you have memory issues? Well, I don't remember it. having any memory issues. <laughs>
1: exactly. You just said no. There we go, then. So we the, yeah. We, we called the doctor and they're like, yeah, no issues. I'm like, what'd you ask? And they said, do you have memory issues? I was like, are you kidding me? And it's like, let me, let me see the report. Um, and they said, you're not allowed, you're not on HIPAA. And so then that just spiraled out of control. So right. so getting on your parents' HIPAA authorization yeah. early, getting yeah, on a absolutely. checking account early can make a difference in this. Yeah.
2: yeah, there's no doubt about that, and I've and I've seen that with my own parents. Uh, you know that that you know because because HIPAA laws and 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 you know definitely have their their place. There's no doubt about it. But you know they sometimes I think also act as a barrier to the people who have nothing but the best you know intentions of the patient at heart, like you know children and, and relatives and and can I think be sometimes an, an, an extra barrier to try and get them to act act as advocates you know for for the patients so there's not a no doubt about that I'm um, so, you know it, it'd be interesting to see if in the next 15, 20 years, there kind of becomes, you know, you know, kind of a hybrid financial planner, you know, I, you know, or maybe these people already exist and I don't know about it, you know, who, who really just focus on, you know, as, as people, you know, do age they're they've entered retirement and, you know, now just trying to basically, you know, manage the, you know, the, the retirement funds they have, you know, my father, you know, lives basically on an, on an, on an annuement that he gets every month. That's part of his, was part of his retirement package, you know, and how does he do that? And, is he doing okay and 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 you know is it is is will, will there be a kind of a specialized financial planner that you know even has some healthcare uh background as well you know that that kind of helps kind of bridge that gap very interesting to see as time goes on so yeah very interesting um so that was the first uh, uh um uh article and then very quickly the second article that that i wanted to bring up uh, also in the realm of alzheimer's was just published in the last two or three weeks uh in jama and uh it was uh the prevalence of CNN. Active polypharmacy among older uh, patients with dementia. Um, uh, those of you who who work uh, 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 in the field of geriatrics, which I would argue is just about everybody who does primary care, including uh, most uh, community pharmacists. Um, this is probably not going to be you know news flash. This is going to be you know you know water is wet you know news at eleven sort of thing. Um, but but it, it it was nice to kind of solidify and get some numbers associated with this. So very similar to the the, the article that Jake showed this. This was a large population database study. And in this study, they just they sought to determine the prevalence of polypharmacy among older uh, adults with dementia living in the community. So these weren't patients who had been institutionalized or anything like that. And this also included you know type of medications, the type commonly prescribed uh, and, and duration of exposure. Uh, they did look at Medicare beneficiaries uh, with with traditional fee for service. So parts A and B, but not Medicare Advantage. And they looked uh, from the time window of 2015, to 2017. Um, and then uh, they all had also had to have an ICD-10 of, of, of dementia. And then they had to be community dwellers uh, uh, during that period and, and after. They did look at the BEERS criteria to kind of select the medications they were using for. I think most of the, the listeners are pretty familiar with the BEERS criteria, so I won't belabor that. Um, I'll be honest. I've always struggled with the BEERS criteria somewhat because while they're definitely medications that, that I think everyone agrees that, that it should be avoided in patients over age 65, if all possible. Um, I every single day see patients over age sixty-five on Beers criteria drugs, and and uh, you know specialists in in the in the fields where these drugs are prescribed would say we can't we can't manage these these conditions without drugs in the Beers criteria. So it's always been always been a struggle. I think you know my my colleagues in geriatrics have always said you know it it's not supposed to be an absolute contraindication list. It's supposed to be you know kind of a recommendation. And it's interesting to see where people kind of lie on that line of you know what well, we absolutely can't have patients on Beers criteria versus, you know, well, I have no other choice, what am I going to do? And and that's kind of the the tale, you know, of this study in and of itself as well. So they looked at Beers criteria drugs with the primary outcome being the prevalence of CNS active drugs in polypharmacy um, during this time period. And this was defined as concurrent exposure to three or more medications that were considered CNS active drugs for longer than 30 days uh, consecutively. And then they looked, they divided them up into antidepressants, antipsychotics. Antiepileptic drugs, benzodiazepines, uh, non uh, benzodiazepine receptor agonist hypnotics, also called the Z drugs, as we know, and opioids. And and, uh, while the the older Beer's criteria did not include epileptics, they actually did. And then the updated Beer's criteria from 2019 actually did as well. And so they then split the cohort into four mutually exclusive groups based on their exposure to CNS active medications during the observation period. Uh, The first group was three or more concurrent medications for longer than 30 days consecutively and those are the people who met the criteria for the polypharmacy episode. The second group are people who were on less than three concurrent medications for longer than 30 days and the third was any supply of medication of one to 30 days consecutively you know, with with these medications, but not on three or more, and then two, basically no exposure was the control. Um, uh, basically, they didn't do a lot of inferential statistics on this, and so uh, it was mostly just a descriptive uh, study. Um, they they basically did uh, the six they did were, were basically compared demographic and clinical characteristics. So they didn't really try and you know, look at, at, at outcomes so much as trying to say how many of these patients are on uh, multiple CNS active medications uh, because this was a Medicare study. It was huge study, actually included over 1.1 million patients, uh, adults who had dementia, uh, with a median age of 83 years, uh, spanning from 77 to 89 years. And as you might not might be surprised, the uh, 65% were female, um, and on, um, only uh, 28.4% of that cohort was not exposed to any CNFAX medications. So let let that sink in for a second. Three quarters of of this 1.1 million cohort with dementia were on at least one and probably more psychoactive Medications, um, and actually, uh, if you look at the total number, uh, it was 46.1 percent of patients who were exposed to two or more active medications for longer 30 days. And then when they broke those numbers, uh, th- those medications down, they're the medications you would expect. Though the top drug surprised me. I would have thought the top drug would have been an SSRI or other antidepressant. And it's our old buddy gabapentin. Actually, was the, was the number one uh, prescribed drug in this in this class. So uh, that did surprise me some. I, I, I'm not going to lie, I, I would have thought, sure, it would have been either a sleeper or, a, or an SSRI, um, but it was gabapentin was number one uh, with polypharma, with the highest number of polypharmacy days. Uh, behind it was trazodone, which of course is commonly used as a sleeper. Number three was quetiapine, and that was a bit of a surprise to me as well, that quetiapine or another antipsychotic would be above SSRIs, um, and then down the road, you see the, the wide, wide variety of other antidepressants, so that's where most of the other SSRIs lie. Just behind that, uh, a long, long number of, of uh, benzodiazepines, including Halprazolam, which was surprising to me, was number 10 uh, uh, on the list of, of drugs that was prescribed. Um, and then uh, hydrocodone, bupropion, respiridone, tramadol, and then uh, some of the opioids and Kepra Actually, was was on that list. And so again, the, the, the point of the paper wasn't necessarily to, to to you know compare the two and find outcomes. This was really more of a descriptive study. Uh, they found that 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 polypharmacy days of over a year, so people who were on at least three medications uh, in those classes for a year, was about twelve percent, and then up to a year was about forty nine percent. So when you add those those two in a, in, a, in a year's exposure, as I said, about 65% of patients would have met the criteria for 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 polypharmacy, um, and uh, uh, the number of patients who are, again were on at least three CNS active medications was 55%, and just to cut cut to the chase number of the greater than six was about 5% and number of the five was about 10%. And of course, you know, to pharmacists and, 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 providers, that's always concerning because, I mean, as we all know, the more CNS drugs you you pile on top of people, the more the risk for, 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 for side effects. And I think probably the risk on, on, on cognition as well. So, you know, the point of the study was to basically just show what I think a lot of people uh, had would suspect and to kind of quantify, the, the fact that that the majority of these patients who have dementia and are community dwellers—again, these were not patients who who lived in in, in nursing homes or, or, or care facilities—are uh, on multiple CNS active medications. Now, you know this is concerning for a number of reasons. One, as I said, I think there is probably an added effect on cognition that we need to be aware of. Um, my colleague uh, uh, Kristen Meyer, I, uh, who's uh, my colleague at Drake and is a, is a geriatric specialist, one of her uh, 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 things that she is very uh, passionate about is making sure these patients are not on a ton of anticholinergic medications and I applaud her for that because I think we put entirely too many patients on benadryl for sleep or or uh, you know uh, uh, urinary incontinence drugs that have you know very high anticholinergic burdens we know that affects cognition so that that's an issue uh, so I think that that plays a role in all this and we shouldn't forget you know the number 3 drug prescribed again in independent these weren't patients who were who were who were, who were in nursing homes in independent patients, the number three drug prescribed here was was quetiapine. And we know all of these drugs have a box warning in the elderly for increased risk of death. And so, you know, I think that I think we do need to take a step back and and think a little bit about about the burden uh, and and risk that we have on this. Now, that is not to say and and again, I have uh, colleagues of mine, some of my attendings are, are, are nursing home directors, and they would be the first to say that they try their best to not use these medications. But in the in the institutionalized patients, Sometimes it's that, or the patient is, you know, is agitated, or can't take care of themselves, or tries to harm themselves or others, or starts wandering out the door and wanders out of, out of out of the uh, nursing home, et cetera, et cetera. But these are community dwellers, and 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 unless unless there's a really good reason to put somebody on Seroquel, I think we really have to think uh, uh, closely about about using those medications and other medications. There may be in in many cases no other choice. There may be a you know a, a case where I have to use medications, but I think as so many things happens in, 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 uh, in, uh, community, uh, uh, medicine, we start medications, we never stop them. We, we start them, we, we, we turn them on and we let them run. And then the patient has been on Seroquel for six or eight or 10 years, or has been on Xanax for, for, for six or eight or 10 years. And we try and wonder where all that happened and, and how we can do it. And I think we need to take a look at if, if we, if we, as, as providers and clinicians, you know, and the patient and their family say, okay, you know, you know, the patient has X problem, Why cns active drug can help. I think that's fine. And I think we need to know the risks and benefits. But I think the other piece about that is we need to, at regular intervals, take a look and say, can we stop the drug? Are there other things we could do? Um, and sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. But I suspect in many cases, and certainly I know many of my my uh, uh, attendings just simply don't have the time for that. They simply don't have the time to sit down and do an in-depth medication review and, 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 and do that. And I think this is another place place where again if if we could if we could uh, uh, you know get pharmacists you know a little bit in the community from behind the counter and i know some pharmacists are already doing this and just kind of doing it more and more to kind of sit down and say let's have a regular medication review let's have let's contact your your prescriber with these inform- with this information and talk about what we can do we already mandate that in the nursing home Right. We already mandate that for Medicare patients in the nursing home that they have a medication review, you know, should should uh, dementia patients in the community deserve any less. And, And I think we'd all agree, probably the answer is no. So, Jake, anything you want to follow up with that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that you've done a really good job covering the pros and cons of this. I want to kind of add a, a personal experience on it and a flavor. So so like you, um, you know, I'm aware of the black box warnings on these drugs, have always advocated for discontinuation. I used to be a consultant in nursing homes, went with it, said discontinue, discontinue. Um, you know, thinking about my days in, in quality measurement, you know, I'd be remiss not to to call out my colleagues at uh, the Pharmacy Quality Alliance PQA and mm-hmm. say that they do have a quality measure focused on polypharmacy CNS. We're seeing that get adopted by Part D and patient safety, and uh, maybe eventually will be a star rating measure. So hmm. this isn't something that's that's going away. Uh, but I think you you hit the nail on the head about the nuance of it. Um, and so as I kind of alluded earlier in the episode, and and Jeff doesn't actually know this story. We were we were talking about this, and I said I'm gonna I'm gonna share the story live, so you don't know what's happening. Okay. Uh, so mom has Alzheimer's. Mom lives with us, and about. Eight to 10 weeks ago, so right in the beginning of the new year, she started to have really bad sundowning, which would also appear throughout the day, where she would scream at the top of her lungs, no, 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 or I don't know, for two plus hours. And we have my dad, my wife, and I, my wife is also a pharmacist, all living here with mom, so all of us together. And we could not do anything to mitigate. We had her sit with dogs. We'd have her bake cookies. We'd listen to music, including the Beatles, which is her favorite band, and an, uh, an ode to today's episode, which is a Beatles song. We would go on car rides. We'd take her on walks. Nothing would stop the two-plus hours of screaming and the angst other than ketiapine. And we've had to go from 25 milligrams up to 125. She gets a dose like every two to three hours, and that has been the only thing that has helped mitigate these kind of emotional attacks. Right. And so prior to all of that, I would have been like, Ooh, ooh, don't do that, don't, don't put her on it. But I had to email the doctor, say I fully accept the risks of the of the black box warning. We need to do it. She is getting violent. We cannot control it. Because it got to this point where we couldn't keep her in the house she'd have to go to a nursing home. If she acted like that in a nursing home, they were just going to sedate her. And it's like, well, why can't we just sedate her here? Mm -hmm. And so it became a much more nuanced uh, aspect of healthcare when I became a caregiver and started to live with it. So I think, you know, it's good to ask how can we get these off? But I think we should start with the question, why did we start it and see how that can lead the conversation?
2: Absolutely, and 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 that yeah, I think that's I that's exactly the point I, that I was I'm trying to make is that is that you know I think some in our profession as pharmacists sometimes tend to look at that at these warnings as absolute contraindications. Well, you just cannot do I this, did. you know, and and I yeah, and I and I I probably did as as well. And I think what 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 my attendings taught me, and it sounds like what your experience taught you, is that you know. We, that there are times when there is no choice that, that, that the, the the patient is a harm to themselves, a patient a harm to others. And, you know, I mean, you know, the, what's the difference if, if, the, the, if she's screaming for two and a half hours, if your mom was screaming for two and a half hours and you had to, to put her in a, in a care facility. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's exactly what they would do is they would just go ahead and sedate her anyway. Right. And so I think, I think, right. you know, uh, you know, pharmacists I think are good gatekeepers and I think we're pretty good at stuff like that, but I think we also have to have to recognize that there are going to be times, where that benefit outweighs the risk. And the benefit in, in your case, thankfully, is that your mom gets to live with you, your mom, you know, and you guys get to enjoy right. more time with her. And I totally think, you know, if I was in a similar position, I'd probably do something similar. So I, and I, I, and I, I have
1: to, to go, please go ahead. call out my wife, Jessica, and her perspective. You know, she said that if, if your mom had stubbed her tone, was in pain, you give her pain meds. She's in mental anguish. Why aren't we doing something for her? Right. And that right. helped me better appreciate this, this, care conversation.
2: Right. So I think I think, you know, my bottom line with the study is, again, it's kind of a water is wet sort of study. Big surprise. I mean, you know, really, you think, you know, people sixty-five uh, with Alzheimer's are on psychoactive medications. This is true. But I think what what as pharmacists particularly we can do is, you know, one, you know, try to minimize the drugs where we do have other options. I'm 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 a pretty big nihilist. I keep coming back to it. I'm a pretty big nihilist when it comes to, to urinary incontinence medications or other big anticholinergic burden drugs, because I think in many cases the benefit doesn't outweigh the risk. Um, but I think we also have to recognize that there are times when these medications are are literally what's what's keeping somebody independent, and that they won't they won't be able to live in the community without them. and And we need to we need to work on a case by case basis, you know, with the patient and the caregiver, and of course the patient's you know values and the and the family's values about what you know what what do they want for for themselves and for their family when we're making our recommendations at both again in the nursing home situation as as, as well as in the community. So, uh, so yeah, so excellent. So those two papers on Alzheimer's, uh, you know, and uh, and the, the, we will have the uh, the uh, citations to both those in, in, the, in the show notes if you wanna take a look at them yourself. We will be right back after this uh, note from uh, CE Impact.
0: Are you looking for a place to collaborate with your pharmacy peers and get CE? CE Impact is excited to announce that we've recently launched the CE Impact Learning Network just for this purpose. The CE Impact Learning Network is a place where pharmacists and pharmacy technicians can take CE courses, attend virtual events, and network with your peers in a professional way. You can do all of this right from your phone. Download our free CE Impact app from the App Store today and join us.
2: So, you know, Alzheimer's is it's scary, um, you know, and, and and I think I think especially uh, as we see our our own family members start to forget things. And, and you think to yourself, you know, you know, my God, what's happening to them and my God, is it going to happen to me? <laughs> I mean, I certainly thought that over the years um, and and and, uh, you know, I think I think we need to be aware of the fact that 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 that. Despite all the other things going on in the world of medicine that, that we do have a silver tsunami heading our way. And it's as this is the first paper you know ascribes, uh, there's, there's an enormous financial burden to these patients. And if we can do something to help out with that, we may keep them independent longer. We may be able to use it as a, as a marker, an early marker to help look and screen for dementia and i think the other piece is is that while while you know these patients down the road may need you know polypharmacy psychoactive phar- polypharmacy to maintain independent living. I think we, you know, pharmacists have to strike that balance between risk and benefit that we should ask for any drug, you know, does the benefits of this drug outweigh the risk? And, uh, you know, starting a patient on XYZ drug and just walking away and saying, well, I guess they're going to be on it for the rest of their life is we're probably not doing our patients any favors. And I think, I think it's definitely something that pharmacists are trained to do and, and can certainly do Or some of these, these detailed medication reviews uh, to help assess that, that, that risk benefit, especially for for a psychoactive medication. So I'd like to thank Jake Galdo, as always, a great uh, guest on this. And I'm sure everyone appreciates not hearing me yap by myself for 30 minutes. So uh, thanks again for listening to this episode of Game Changers. Uh, Please head over to where you listen to uh, to podcasts and like and subscribe. And again, once more, head on over to CE Impact to take a look at at what we got as far as, as CE programs, including this program. So thanks again. We will see you next week. And remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening in to Game Changers each week. It's easy to get CE for today's podcasts. Just go to ceimpact.com and purchase a pharmacist subscription. The link is in the show notes.